Good morning. The passage for today is from John 4, 4 through 26. Now he, that is Jesus, had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's, Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. So what you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit. And his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Right on. Hey, everybody. Okay. Uh, We're taking a detour today. We're we're doing something different, you may have noticed. Um, uh, We've been in Matthew for a while now, like 50 weeks or something like that. (laughs) It's very casual this morning. I'm, I'm, I'm just... I've got, I've got 17 people sleeping at my house right now, and mostly children, and so, like, this is an escape. <laughs> and all these kids are, are, of course, carrying various diseases. <laughs> Several of them, I'm sure, have diseases unique to them, and they're providing them to everyone else in the house. Um, okay, but, so, I got a little one, not, not a big one, a little, little disease, but we're good. Um, but here's our passage today, and... Um, there's a lot going on in this passage. It's rather long. Um, and the truth is, um, most people go from 4 to 24 or 4 to 26. Um, I'm actually going to cover the majority of the chapter today because there's a lot more going on. And I hate it when people stop like around this general area because you miss the actual whole point of the story. Um, and I figured I'd, I'd walk away from Matthew today because a lot of you weren't be here. I, I was like, yeah, a lot of people aren't going to be there. I was right. Love it. I see it. Okay, so glad you guys are here. We're going to do something different. And uh, it's going to be fun. Um, I, hear this, I hear this passage talked about all the time. And every time I hear it talked about, I just have to close my mouth and say, don't talk, Tommy, don't talk, because they're doing it all wrong. Um, 
They're wildly misinterpreting this passage. So I'm going to try to do a little bit of correction this morning and uh, help you see something you maybe haven't seen before. Um, and so uh, why don't I open us up in a word of prayer, and I'm just going to start cruising um, and, and see how far we can get here, shall we? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. Um, may our time together be uplifting, encouraging. May we um, find joy and peace. May we have new perspectives. May we um, see things that we haven't seen. Um, fill us up. Uh, fine-tune the, the dials of our soul that, uh, that, that need to be reset, need to be tuned. Help us to look at the world uh, the way you do. Um, help us to take part in the things that you're doing. Help us to have uh, uh, the heart that you have for the people that are here in this world, in our city. Um, they are your people. You, you have desires for relationships with them, and, and, and you desire goodness and good things for them. Let us be a part of the revelation of that to these people. Thank you, Father. In your name, amen. So Jesus is walking. Uh, he's heading north from Jerusalem, and there's this place called Samaria that is north of Jerusalem, and he's heading there with his 12 disciples. Um, a lot of Jews tend to kind of go around Samaria, not always, um, because there's a lot of hostility between these people. So the first thing we're going to do is we're going to lay a foundation for this story, and actually this foundation is good for any time you see any passage in the Bible where Samaritans are mentioned in this story. There's a lot of backstory. There's, there's, there's a lot going on that you kind of need to hear and, and, uh, and catch up with. So first off, we're going to talk about the Samaritans and who the Samaritans were, and um, that's going to probably open your eyes to some stuff going on in this passage. So the Samaritans... Um, <clears throat> the story of the Samaritans really does start uh, with the Israelites um, at one point uh, about uh, 700 years before Jesus. Um, the Assyrians gather an army and they, they raise Israel and they take all the Israelites captive and they take them. What the Assyrians did when they conquered people is they took them from their city and moved them to another city. And then they would take people from another conquered city and move it into their city. This does several things. First off, it sort of breaks the morale of the people. Second, um, you're not going to fight for a city that is not yours. So it quells uprisings. And so they would take these people, they would conquer a city, take those people and relocate them to another city. It's called being in exile. So the Israelites are in exile in a city called Babylon. Um, however... All that mattered in the ancient world was the cities. The hillsides and the countrysides didn't really matter. And in the hillsides and the countryside, there were a lot of Israelites who were scattered around these areas uh, in the hills of Shechem um, and a few other places. And these Israelites were never taken into captivity. They were allowed to remain where they were because they're just scattered around and they didn't necessarily matter. Um, so 400 years later, the Israelites come back and... There are these Israelites who have been isolated for 400 years. Um, there are certain things about them. First off, they were Israelites who have never taken into captivity. I have that here. Secondly, while the Israelites were gone for 400 years, you know, people who are isolated, they change. Um, if you take family members, you move them around the world, different places. When they come back together, if they come back together 20 or 30 years later, they are wildly different. Wildly different traditions, ways of talking, all of it. So in that 400 years, the Samaritans whom they came to be called, um, had revised their Hebrew scriptures. They, they were carrying on their Judaism, but they revised the Hebrew scriptures to write their own story into it, to sort of say, um, and there was another tribe called the Samaritans who were never taken into captivity, and they told their own story, and they sort of worked it into the ancient Hebrew scriptures. Um, and they said a lot of things. It changed the readings of a lot of things. Also, um, 
they didn't have a temple because it was destroyed in Jerusalem. So they built this brand new temple up on a huge high mountain um, called Gerizim, Mount Gerizim. And it overlooks this huge city called Shechem. And, and it, it sort of looked like the original temple, but they, they worshiped differently there. Now, um, on top of that, when the Israelites came back uh, 500 years later, they, were, they, they saw the Samaritans, um, who were their distant sort of Israelite cousins um, by this point, because they were vastly different. Um, and they said, well, you guys are doing this all wrong. You're heretics. Um, you've changed everything. You're not worshiping the same way. You have your own temple. You should be doing what we do, reading our Bible and worshiping in our temple. So you're heretics and we disavow you. So they wouldn't. And the Samaritans originally were like, hey, welcome back. And they say, hold on, you guys are too different. We have nothing to do with you. Your religion now is not what our religion has become while we were away. Um, so this here is Mount Gerizim. Um, and here's the remains the, uh, of the temple. And looking down into this, down there at the very bottom up there, I know it's a little pixelated, but that's the city of Shechem today. Um, the ruins are still there. And so basically, hostility grew between these two groups, the, the, the Jews and the Samaritans. And the Jews at one point um, attacked the Samaritan city, um, trying to wipe them out and destroy them because they, didn't want to, they, they wanted them gone. They thought it was like this perverted version of their religion. Um, and at some point, a lot of this you can read in the, in the, um, uh, the, the apocryphal books. Um, if you grew up in Catholicism, um, then, then you'll be familiar with these books. Um, the Samaritans at one point gathered up, exhumed a bunch of bones from local graveyards and snuck into the Jewish temple during Passover and spread the bones around their temple to sort of defile their temple so that people couldn't worship there. So they, they were like pulling these things on each other, trying to destroy each other. They hated each other. And for 300 years before the time of Christ, hostilities grew between them to the point where they absolutely hated everything about each other. Now, um, that is the backdrop to every Samaritan story. Every one of them. They were um, these low-life versions of them, these perverted versions of sort of Judaism um, that intermarried with the people. The Persians are who the Assyrians moved into to Jerusalem. So they moved the, uh, the Israelites out of Jerusalem and they moved the, per- the Persians in and they, they married them and it sort of distorted their religion. Um, and so Jesus walks into Samaria and we pick up the story here. Um, and he comes to this well. He comes to this well. It's, it's called Jacob's well. You can read about it in the Old Testament. Long backstory. But he comes to this well, and he's hanging out by this well. It was Jacob's well. Um, and uh, it says this. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Um, his disciples had gone into the town to buy food. So John is an incredible writer. He's going to paint this picture. Now, they didn't have movies back then. Um, their, their, their readings would have been very dramatic. Every detail of this story is incredibly important to really grasp what is happening here. So first off, his disciples left Jesus there. They went to Shechem to buy food. Jesus is there alone. This woman walks up, a Samaritan woman. It's obvious that she's Samaritan. It's obvious that Jesus is a Jewish rabbi. He's got all the garb on, and he's even got followers. He's got the tzitzit, the tassels, tassels. He's got everything. They know, they recognize each other as sort of mortal enemies, right? This woman comes up to the well, Jacob's well, and Jesus says, can you draw me some water? And the woman responds. Um, the Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So the first thing that this woman does um, is she reminds him there is a cultural boundary here. Why are you asking me for water? This is sort of like, why are you talking to me? You know the rules. 
You know how this goes. You know that we do not associate together. I'm a Samaritan. You are a Jew. How can you ask me for water? Now, there are all these boundaries that Jesus is crossing here. There's, there's gender boundaries. He's alone with this woman talking to her. There is, um, there is the, the, the religious boundary. There's the ethnic cultural boundary. There's all these things going on. And Jesus is just ignoring them. And he talks to her. And she instantly reminds him this is inappropriate in the context of where we are, of what we're doing. This is wildly inappropriate. Um, there's reasons that people, even today, separate themselves from other people, um, that they have these boundaries. There are reasons that they, that they keep themselves away. Um, sometimes it is because it's, it's out of hatred. Sometimes it's, um, I just, I hate these kinds of people, and so I don't welcome them into my midst, into my world, into my town, into my life. The places I go, these kinds of people are not there. I would never live in a place where these kinds of people are. This is one of the reasons people separate from each other. Um, But there's another reason, typically, that victims will separate from other people, people who have been through hard things, people who have suffered a lot. Um, They'll separate themselves from people to avoid suffering, to avoid um, the things that they have felt before. This is why a lot of different members of, of, of society, even in our city, um, don't enter into places like worship gatherings, like Sunday morning church services, um, because they're afraid, because they've been hurt, because they've suffered. Um, and one of the things that they do is they separate themselves to sort of maintain that distance, to keep that hurt from affecting them any longer. And this is one of the things, oh, I don't go there because there is a cultural boundary. This is what is happening here. This woman is reminding Jesus there's a cultural boundary here. We live in different worlds. Um, and so the, the, the story moves forward. Jesus responds. Uh, so the woman said to him, sir. Oh, sorry. So verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, uh, who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, living water is kind of an ancient buzzword. Uh, there's two types of water. There's still water and living water. Both are mentioned in scriptures. Uh, he leads me beside still waters, right? Psalm 23, talking about sheep. A good shepherd leads his sheep beside still water. There's still water and there's living water. Still water comes from lakes. It's ponds. It's just water that is still. Um, most agricultural animals like sheep will not drink from moving rushing water. They're afraid of it. They're skittish. Um, and so a good shepherd, you know, leads his sheep by water that is still so they can drink. And you can see predators there. If the water moves, you know, danger, stay away. Um, living water is water that comes from a spring. It is flowing out of a spring in the ground. Um, everyone wants, um, hold on. Everyone on their property in the ancient world desired living water, a spring, um, a place where they can just drink from all the time. The Romans um, built these massive aqueducts to bring spring water to them because everyone wanted this running water in their house. We take this for granted. This woman comes to the well every single day, um, travels probably a long ways, a really long walk to fill up her jugs with water and then walks home because she has no property. She's likely poor. Um, she doesn't have any, any of this Roman plumbing that was going around. Um, she didn't have any of that. And so she has a jar And that's all she has. And she goes and finds living water. So Jesus speaks to her and he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. He says, I've got a well. He says, here we are at the well of Jacob. You've got a well. I asked you for water from your well, from your living water. So Jesus literally asks her for a drink of living water. And then he says, I have living water too. Would you like some? 
would you like a well, basically? And there's this sort of witty banter that goes back and forth. He says, you'll never thirst again. Um, and so then this woman sort of, sort of plays along very literally, and she says, the woman, it says, the woman said to him in verse 15, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Oh, I would love my own well. Then, I would have, then I'd be able to stop coming here every day to drink from this well. All right? Now, this woman has moved it into sort of this business transaction sort of thing. Oh, you've got land with water? I would love to have that. And so then Jesus goes along with her words. And Jesus says this. He told her, go and call your husband and come back. Why did he say that? Because women were not allowed to purchase or own land in that day. And so he says, okay. Oh, oh, you want land? Okay, well, you're going to need a husband. Go get him. This is where everything turns and everything changes. Because this woman looks at Jesus and she says, I have no husband. She replied. And Jesus said to her, yes, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is that you have had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Um, now, a quick uh, raise of hands, um, and I really mean that, raise of hands. How many of you have, first off, how many of you have heard this story before? Okay. How many of you have heard that this woman... Um, is being confronted by Jesus because she is sexually promiscuous. Okay. Um, I'm going to challenge that. Uh, That is absolutely, like I am firm in this, that is absolutely not what's happening. Um, Although that is pervasive everywhere. Really for the last 500 years, this is how people have taught this passage. Um, um, Most modern scholars today with, with the scholarship that we found from the Dead Sea Scrolls and all understanding ancient first century culture, um, we know better now. Um, and this goes back a long ways and it really changes your entire reading of this passage. There's actually, um, one of the most prominent um, understandings of this passage comes from uh, men like John Calvin and Martin Luther. Um, let me read you uh, from John Calvin's own, um, own uh, commentary on this passage. John Calvin is was, was a great man. He, did, he, did, he had his moments of incredible brightness, and they had other moments that were not so, were not so great, just like all of us do. And so I don't wipe people off. Um, I, I read the things, and I'm, I'm blessed by a lot of work that people do that, that I disagree with all the time. Um, here's some writings from John Calvin. This is his understanding of this passage. This is pervasive. This is probably a lot of your understandings here. He says this. The reason of this, and this is sort of old English, the reason of this is probably, the reason of this probably was that being a froward, froward, froward and disobedient wife, she constrained her husbands to divorce her. I interpret the words thus, though God joined thee to lawful husbands, thou didst not cease to sin until rendered infamous by numerous divorces, thou prostitutest thyself to fornication. So basically his interpretation of this is, um, so being a froward and disobedient wife, she was really disobedient and, and so her husbands kept divorcing her, and then she kept sleeping around at the same time promiscuously. Um, he, even, he even takes the words of Jesus, like the reason Jesus even brought this up, according to Calvin, here's the next, here's the next part. Christ, in order to repress the woman's talkativeness, brought, <laughs> thank you, brought forward her former and present life. Calvin literally claims the woman was talking too much, and so Jesus pointed out her sin. I have, I have heard this taught. Um, this was taught in, when I was in Bible school sometime back in like 99, 2000. 
Um, now, uh, this, is, this is wildly an error. Um, let's go back to our passage. He told her, go and get your husband and come back. She says, I have no husband. She replied, Jesus, she replied, Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you have now is not your husband. Nowhere in here does it mention divorce. Nowhere in here does it mention um, sexual promiscuity. Nowhere in this passage is Jesus judging or condemning her in any way. He's stating a fact about her life. If you understand, um, I put an essay online a few weeks ago. Um, if you read that, you'll understand women in the first century um, were not legally allowed to initiate marriage or divorce. They were not. Um, they, had, they had legally no rights at all. They were property that men owned. Um, and so this woman, uh, to imagine that this woman has, has been divorced five times and yet men kept marrying her, first off, a man in the first century would never marry um, a woman who has been divorced, let alone divorced two or three or four times. It's, that's unheard of. That would never happen. What's likely going on here um, is that this woman has, is probably likely widowed. Um, the life expectancy in this part of the world at this time for men was about 35 years old. Women in this time were married probably around the age of 13, 14. Um, and maybe there was plagues. Um, maybe there was war. All kinds of things were going on at the time that were causing lots and lots of men to die and to widow women. And likely what is going on is that um, these Samaritan people are still following the ancient Jewish laws of taking care of orphans and widows in their distress, and men are taking this woman in and marrying her to give her legal protection and rights. And so likely what is happening is this woman's husbands are dying, and the other men, maybe uh, brothers of... Legally, it would have been brothers first, and then other members of the family second would bring her into their house, marry her, take care of her, and provide for her. And so Jesus comes to this woman, and he steers the conversation to basically say, I see you. I've seen your suffering. I know what you've been through. You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. Now there's a man who's not even legally married to her, who is now she is staying with and he is providing for her. This woman um, is a woman who has been through a lot and is suffering. A lot of women in the scriptures, what you will see um, if, you, if you follow um, sort of the scholarship of the last, uh, for the last 500 years or so, is a lot of women, their stories have been distorted to match sort of our day and our culture. Um, the things that modern-day people tend to say are the worst things. Um, by the way, uh, so Christmas just ended. Easter is coming. Uh, when you get to Easter, you're going to hear a lot of stories about Mary Magdalene, the prostitute. She's literally not a prostitute. There's not a shred of evidence in scriptures that she is a prostitute in any way. And someone at some point, some, some scribe, some bishop, decided that she was a prostitute and started talking like this because it would make the story bigger, someone being saved from promiscuity. Um, there's a woman in Romans 17 whom Paul calls, um, her name is Junia. Paul calls her an apostle equal with the other apostles, an apostle amongst those apostles, like a leader among the other apostles. A woman apostle. 
leading the other apostles. Um, at some point when the Bible was translated from the Septuagint into the, Latin, the Greek into the Latin, um, one of the scribes didn't like what he saw, that this woman was in leadership, and he changed her name from Junia. He added an S on the end, making it Junius, which makes her a man. This wasn't discovered really until recent scholarship when we find ancient texts, and all of them say this was a woman. A lot of the reputation of these women whom Jesus approached um, and lifted up and cared for, and whom the early Christians promoted and lifted up and cared for, um, a lot of them have just been tarnished again by the people who, who follow this book. Over and over and over again. Um, there is, again, not, not a shred of evidence, shred of evidence in here. Um, the text tells us that she had five husbands. It doesn't tell us why. But everything we know tells us she is, she is not a promiscuous woman. She is a suffering, poor woman. Joking about owning land with a well. Um, and so let's... Uh, hold on, I'm going to see if there's any more. So what this passage really is. So um, whereas this passage has always sort of been a, a passage and a story about Jesus confronting someone's sin... What this actually is, is Jesus crossing all kinds of boundaries, cultural boundaries, and entering into the life of someone um, who is misunderstood and oppressed and suffering and entering into her story. And if you keep going in the story, instead of stopping at verse 24 or 26, if you keep going, what you see is this incredible thing um, happening. This is a story about crossing boundaries. It's not a story about morality. Let's keep going. Um, John four nineteen, Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. And so once again, there's this boundary reminder. And she says, sir, we can joke all we want about water and well and being fed, but you know as well as I do what your people have done to my people. We worship, we've worshipped here on Mount Gerizim in our temple for 400 years and you Jews have always told us we're wrong. You've told us that we're heretics. You've told us everything that we are is useless and awful, and we should be more like you. And it's sort of like, what are you doing here? I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. And then we go a little farther. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. And so Jesus says, Jesus says, um, Yes, it has been like this for a long time. We have worshipped in several different places in different ways. Right now is the moment when that ends. Jesus says the time, has, the time is coming and has now come for reconciliation, for us to be brought back together, for us to worship together again, for us to spend time um, once again like fixing and reconciling all the things that have been broken. This is a message for all of us. Because we all have people in our lives whom over the years um, 
we have separated ourselves from, we have not gone towards again. Maybe at one point you were close and now you are separated. Um, and it just, it can never be right again. You can never, you can never love again. You can never um, be in the same place again. You can never show each other respect again. And Jesus says, the whole point of me, of Jesus coming, the whole point of this is to create a path to reconciliation for two parties who never thought that they could reconcile. This is the whole deal. This is all of what this is. Um, he says all of that stops right here with the work of Jesus. All of it. And then we go a little farther. And it says, just then, as Jesus is talking to this woman, so here's the big setup, and it gets really beautiful. Um, just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Okay, so instantly, so here we are. This woman, uh, the Samaritan woman, we don't even have her name. I think, honestly, the reason we don't have her name is because she's supposed to stand for all Samaritans to the early church. Okay, so she's standing here. She doesn't have a name. Um, and Jesus, the Jewish rabbi, is talking with her. And his Talmudim, his disciples, come walking up to see their rabbi, and they're surprised to see him standing there talking to her. Now imagine this woman's position here. She's standing here with this Jewish rabbi, and now 12 other Jews are surrounding her, and she's standing there. Um, and it's getting awkward. And uh, something's probably got to change because she can feel their eyes judging. Even though he's not, they are. This is wildly unlike anything they've ever experienced. And verse 28, then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way towards him. So... Um, the disciples walk up. It's starting to get really awkward. The woman drops her water bottle right there, her jug right there on the, on the side of the well, and she runs. Now, Jacob's well and the city of Shechem, um, from the maps where I can judge, it looks like about maybe three quarters of a mile of a run. So this woman drops everything, and she runs back into her city, and she gathers up the other Samaritans that she knows, maybe family and friends, and she starts telling them um, about this man. She starts telling him, he, he told me everything I ever, he, he knows me, he knows who I am. Um, there's this Jewish prophet, he knows me, he knows my story. Um, he, she, she literally says, he tells me, he knows everything I ever did. This is a signal to the reader that God is intimately familiar with your situation. God knows exactly what you've been going through. He sees it, understands it. By the way, this is, this is the first step to healing suffering. This is why um, people can mock um, hashtag activism all they want. They call it slacktivism and are trying to stop you basically from doing it. Um, the, one of the reasons it's important is because one of the first steps to healing is, is for, for people who are suffering to know that they're seen. Like, I, I see what you've been through. I want you to know. I can see. A lot of people can work themselves through very difficult things as long as, 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 long as they know that other people realize that it's difficult for them. The first thing Jesus does is walks up and says, I, I realize what you've been through is difficult. I want you to know I see you. And this woman is ecstatic, and she runs back and she tells the people, he knows me, he knows us, he knows what I've been through, and he's still talking to me. Um, he's a prophet, and he's a loving man. And so we read a little farther, um, and verse 29, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? So they were still waiting for this, this king who they could follow the same way the Jews were. And it says, they came out of the town and made their way towards him. Remember that, verse 30. I'm going to underline that. They came out of the town, so they're leaving the town. And all this is, at that point back then, was this massive field. They, they came out of the town, and, and they're making their way towards them, 
Okay? Um, while this is going on, Jesus turns and starts talking to now his disciples. He spoke to this woman. He said, I have something that you need. Me, a Jewish rabbi, have something that you need. Um, a, a spring of water that will fill you up and make you whole again. And he turns to his own disciples and he starts talking to them about food. Um, and they're like, oh, he's hungry. And literally, I'm not going to go into it all today. The text literally says, someone says, oh, maybe Jesus is hungry. Go get him some food. And Jesus says, I have food you know nothing about. And they're like, oh, you got like a doggy bag? Where? Like under your tunic? Like, where's your food? Um, and Jesus starts saying, I'm not talking about actual food. Just like with this woman, I wasn't talking about real water. There's something that you need, something that I have that you need. And we keep going. And Jesus says in verse 34, my food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying? It's still four months until the harvest. I tell you, open your eyes, look at the fields. They are ripe for the harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. So they are here. This is a picture from 1914, back before it was all built up. They're here in this field. Shechem is over there. That's Mount Gerizim. And the people are walking through these fields. And as they're walking through the fields, Jesus is talking to his people, his own disciples. I have something that you need. You have no idea that you've been missing this. You desperately need this. Um, and he looks at them and he points and he says, I tell you, open your eyes and look to the fields. And he points. He had to have pointed because they just told us these people are walking towards him. Look to the fields. Look what is coming. And they look out there and there's a whole band of Samaritans coming their way. Look to the fields. Open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps. Even now, like right now. And he's pointing at them. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and a harvest, a crop for eternal life. So that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. He's been talking to them in this little speech he made to them about, about some people sow and some people reap, but everyone's glad and everyone eats and everyone rejoices. Guess what? God has been sowing this for a long time, and this is the moment when they are coming and you are going to reconcile with these people. The reconciliation that needs to happen in the world is going to start right here at this well. And they're coming towards him. Um, if I... If I keep reading in this passage, it says this. I'm going to leave this up. It says this um, in verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed him, believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Because, uh, it says, because of the woman's testimony, he told me everything I ever did. And verse 40, when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed with them two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. So these Samaritans... They, they come to Jesus, and they say, you, you know our pain. You know our suffering. You know us, and you're still drawing near to us. Why don't you come stay with us for a few days? It's almost like they've always really craved the wisdom and the knowledge and the love of the Jewish people, and they've never been able to receive it because they've been shunned by them. The Jewish people always stand back and say, no, you need to become more Jewish to join us. And Jesus actually becomes far more Samaritan. And he moves towards them. And they, he moves in for two days and he speaks to them. And, 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 and verse 42, they said to him, we no longer believe just because of, of what you said, speaking to the woman. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. The word savior there is the word we talked about a few weeks ago. Um, it means Lord. It means king. This is, in the Roman Empire, a dangerous thing to say. Suddenly, like the early Christians, these people are laying down their lives and saying, um, Caesar's not Lord, Jesus is Lord. 
and we're going to follow his teachings and his words. Now, this is an amazing story, um, an incredibly beautiful story. There's actually, in church history, a much deeper aspect to this. The book of John, the book that this is captured, there's four, in case you're not familiar with the Bible, there's four what we call gospels, the four stories of the life of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John is the fourth one. John is, is wildly different from the other ones. Um, John was a different kind of person. John was a follower of Jesus. John would have been with Jesus at the well this very day and had seen this whole thing. Um, John, from church history, we know, started what's called the, the Johannian community. Johann is, is the Greek word for John. So the Johannian community, um, they, they decided that they were, they were followers of Jesus. They were a Christian community, but they considered themselves Jewish Christians. Um, so they worshipped in the synagogue, and they worked with the Jewish people. They still considered themselves Jewish. Sometime after 70 AD, um, after the temple collapses and is, and is burned to the ground, um, the Johannian community is kicked out of the synagogue by the Jewish people. And the reason that the Johannian community, the community of John, the church that John had built, the reason it was kicked out of, of the Jewish congregation was because they kept bringing Samaritans to church. They kept going into Shechem and finding more Samaritans who were followers of Jesus and bringing them along. And the Jewish people still said, we do not want Samaritans here. We do not want Samaritans here. There's a man named A.B. Simpson um, back in uh, the 1890s who started a church in New York City, and he kept bringing. It was a very rich, fancy church. He was hired by them to be the pastor straight out of seminary, and he would go down to the docks, and he would bring in all these poor people um, and these immigrants and these foreigners into the church, and eventually he got fired for it because this is what happens. We like, to, we like our boundary markers. We like to separate ourselves from everyone else. And the Johannian community gets exiled and kicked out of the, uh, the Jewish synagogue for bringing all these Samaritans um, to their gatherings. And this was apparently, from the ancient writings, this was really traumatic for them and really, really hard on them. And you know how they responded? John wrote the book of John. You know what's in the book of John that's not in the other Gospels? Tons of stories about Samaritans. Tons. The other Gospels don't really even, most of them ignore Samaritans. Um, and with the exception of Luke, who tells this parable called the Good Samaritan. And if you call someone a Good Samaritan today, what does that mean? It means they're, it's a compliment. They're a good person, right? Jesus did that. That was a curse in his day. So Jesus literally took this despised, hated people and turned their name in human history into this compliment. That's the kind of stuff that Jesus does. It's amazing. So the first century communities, they were all about this. They wanted to bring in all these people. So what we really have here is a story of outcasts and a woman who is an outcast. um, And Jesus enters into their life. He doesn't stand back and say, you need to become more like me so that you can come and be with me. He says, I'm actually going to move towards you. And he draws near towards them. And it, it raises several questions that if Jesus were alive today, uh, walking around, um, it, there are questions that, that I like to think, I like to wonder, would we ask these questions? First off, would we ever look at Jesus and say, why are you talking to that person? We likely would. Have you ever said this about any of your friends? Anyone you know? Why are you talking to them? That um, is a signal that there is a boundary in your life against a person or a people group because of some actions that they've done and you have deemed them too far out of, out of your tribe. You've kicked them out, you've separated from them. 
Any, I, I, I want to be frank. Anytime we as a religious people or a church or whatever, anytime we draw a line in the sand and say, we're over here, they're over there. Jesus is, if Jesus is here, Jesus is going to go, oh, okay, okay. He's going to walk over to them. That's what Jesus does every single time. All the scriptures. And the second question it raises is, um, what do we expect of Jesus? Do we expect him more to walk into a situation and rebuke everybody's sin? Or to sit down and get to know them? And to know what causes this? To intimately get to know these people. To, to know their story. To become intimate with their situation. This is actually what Jesus did. Um, and just like we wildly misinterpret this passage because of our own sort of cultural tendencies, we look at this passage and the things that we've been fed over the years and say, oh, she's a promiscuous woman and Jesus is calling her out on her sin. Um, that is wrong. And for centuries we've been tarnishing this woman's reputation. Um, first off, we need to repent of that. But that should be a signal to us that maybe we're wrong about a lot of people. When we look at them and they say, they're terrible, they're just in sin, and they need to just cut it out. Maybe, maybe you could learn a lot more by moving in sort of into their neighborhood, spending time with them, loving them, letting them know, hey, I know you've been mistreated. I know you've suffered. I want you to know you are loved. There is, there is a God, a divine God in the universe who wants to know you. I'm a follower of Jesus. I want to know you. And I want to walk with you. And I want to spend time with you. I want to bring you healing. This is how this works. And after two days, these people said, it's not just the words. It was the life that changed us. This is how people change. Last Two weeks ago, we had... And two weeks ago, I did a sermon about how people change. This is the perfect way to finish that off. Um, and lastly, if we're going to talk about Jesus and how, how the gospel works, um, Jesus never demanded that other people pour their lives out for him. He poured his life out for them. He was broken, body broken, blood poured out for the salvation of the world. Um, this is how this is done. And so we're going to take communion to remind us of all of this, that in all of the things that, that we feel like we've accomplished and are good at, so if you're a communion servers, please go ahead and take the elements. Um, all the things that, that you feel really great about, all the things, all the ways that you've really conquered and risen above all the people around you, I want you to stop, come, spend, some, spend a moment in prayer and solitude and silence and reflection on your life. And I want you to come to the table and I want you to look at the elements of communion. There's, there's bread broken and there's wine poured out. And I want you to think, but the body of Christ was broken for me and the blood of Christ was spilled for me, just like all these other people. And Jesus looked at me and Jesus said, follow me. This is the only option I have. And be reminded of your path, of your struggles. Be reminded that there's a God who knows you, who infinitely knows you, and infinitely loves you. And that you don't need to walk around feeling all this shame and guilt. You need to bring it to the table and trade it for the broken body and the spilled blood of Christ. Um, realize that what we're living for is King Jesus, Lord Jesus. Um, the Sermon on the Mount is our constitution and bylaws, and, and that's what we live by. Um, the, the representation that we have of God is Jesus. And so let's learn to follow him more closely. Let's pray, shall we? Father, thank you.
for the works you did back then. Thank you that you are always, always bringing us to places of, of changes of heart and mind. Thank you for these ancient stories that find new life in each generation as we are just still plundering the, the depths of the treasures of your scriptures. Help us to do that every day. Help us to understand. Help us to love. Help us to draw near to those whom we have separated ourselves from. Remind us that there is no boundary marker that is, that is so strong and so difficult that, that you wouldn't just walk right through and open yourself up to someone. Thank you, Father. In your name, amen. Take some time with Christ.